If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Back in 1948, Dr Ludwig Gutmann organised a competition for wheelchair athletes. He named it the Stoke Mandeville Games. But few could have imagined then that his brainchild would evolve into the sporting extravaganza that's this summer's Paralympics in Tokyo. As hundreds of competitors go for gold in the Japanese capital, our production editor, Spencer Mizen, spoke to Ian Britton, an expert in disability and Paralympic sport based at Coventry University, about the history of competitive sport for disabled people. Ian, we're talking on the eve of the delayed... 2020 Summer Paralympics. Now, this is obviously an enormous event involving hundreds of athletes with the events being right across the globe. But I I wonder if we could start by going right back to the beginning, to to the roots of the Paralympic movement. When do we see the emergence of sporting competition designed specifically for disabled people? Well, there are smatterings of it, if you like, in the Early uh, early 1900s, we had the Society for One-Armed Golfers and the Disabled Drivers Motor Club. But I guess the real start of it was just after the Second World War when we had a lot of um, soldiers returning uh, from uh, Europe, etc., with spinal cord injuries due to shrapnel or bullet wounds, etc., and also 
some civilians due to falling masonry during the Blitz, etc. Um, and so a special spinal injuries unit was set up at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in the UK. And that's really where sport started to be used as a form of rehabilitation for uh, injured veterans in order to try and give them some semblance of um you know movement etc i mean prior prior to the second world war most people who uh got a spinal cord injury particularly a severe spinal cord injury their life expectancy was about 2 to 3 months and they were basically just left to die in hospital beds behind a curtain. Um, but the introduction of things like sulfur drugs, etc., around that time helped to start slowly improving their life expectancy. Whose brainchild were the games at Stoke Mandeville? I mean, who was the driving force behind this development? So there was a, a, a German-Jewish neurosurgeon called Ludwig Gutmann who escaped Nazi Germany in 1939 with his family and came and settled in the UK. And the uh, British government asked him to take over this new spinal injuries unit at Stoke Mandeville. And he agreed to do it on the grounds that he was allowed to run it how he wanted to run it. And one of the things he did was introduce sport as a way of bringing back sort of muscle tone, etc., to people who've been, you know, left lying in beds for, for months on end. Because unfortunately, prior to that, attitudes towards people, particularly with spinal cord injuries, were they're basically on the scrap heap of life. You know, they're left to die. They're of no use to society. You know, let's be done with them. Whereas he actually uh, introduced sport. And he had three main reasons for introducing sport. One was that it was a, it was a very, uh, what he called a curative factor in that it was a very natural way to slowly strengthen the body and get them used to like pushing a wheelchair, etc. You need to build up a body strength. That's actually the reason why archery was one of the first sports he introduced, because it was very good for strengthening the muscles needed to push yourself around in a wheelchair. He also realised that sport was, uh, it was very good psychologically. He believed if the activity wasn't fun, it wasn't worth doing because you didn't really get anything out of it. And his third reason was that actually it was a very good way of reintegrating people into society. So in terms of the, the archery, people could go along when they were discharged from Stoke Mandeville and went home, they could go and join the local archery club and shoot on the same shooting line as all of the non-disabled archers. And that gave them the opportunity to show people that they actually could contribute to society and were still able to do things. Now, where were the first official Paralympic Games held? And what did, the, um, what did these first games look like? How many competitors took part and, and, and which sports did they compete in? Okay, so they, they, the first 12 years, 1948 to 1959, there was a, 
uh, a Stoke Mandeville Games. They became international in 1952. They were held every year and they grew and grew and grew in size. And I mean, believe it or not, Gutman was always, he was always pushing this link between the Stoke Mandeville Games and the Olympic Games to the extent that in the second games where there were only two sports in 1949 and um, 39 competitors, I think, he actually said at the end that he hoped that one day there would be a disabled person's equivalent of a, the Olympic Games, which is a hell of a thing to say, you know, when you've only got two sports and 36 athletes or 39 athletes. But the Games grew and grew at Stoke Mandeville and eventually he managed to persuade the Italian authorities in Rome who were hosting the Olympic Games to put on the first Paralympic Games they were relatively small. There were 21 nations participating, roughly 330 athletes, all who had spinal cord injuries. And they competed in, I think it was 117 events over nine sports. And what kind of reception did these early games receive from the press, the general public and, and the world sports and governing bodies? I mean, were they generally positive to these developments? Oh, to be honest, I'm not even sure they even noticed they were going on, you know, because attitudes towards disability, I mean, they're still not great today, but back then they were, you know, really quite negative and quite dismissive. There was some media coverage, but it, you get the impression it was almost sort of, um, I don't want a freak show's too, too strong a word, but, you know, it was that sort of curiosity thing. So there was some small level of media coverage, but in terms of sports governing bodies, etc., you know, I doubt they were even aware the games were occurring. Following on from that, I mean, and moving forward a little bit, what have the Paralympics done more generally for the acceptance of disabled people around the world and, and also for participants participation numbers in disabled sports among the wider population? Well, I guess they, they've, you've got to be very careful here. I mean, to, to, on, on one side, they've sort of raised awareness of the capabilities, the skill, the abilities of a wide range of different impairments, um, you know, for dis people, for disabled people, you know, they have definitely for some other disabled people acted as a uh, an inspiration to get involved and you know take part themselves and shown them that maybe things that they've often been told they're not capable of doing well these people are showing them that well that person's got the same impairment as I have and they're doing that so why can't I you know I'll give it a try but you also have to be careful that because there's a danger then that Paralympians become the yardstick by which all people, disabled people, are measured by. You know, and some people simply aren't interested in sport like everybody else. You know, or they, they might want to be mathematicians or musicians or so there's a, there is a, a sort of inspirational element to it, but you have to temper it and realise that not all disabled people are or ever want to be Paralympians. Now, you've mentioned archery. I mean, what, what were the other notable sports um, in these early games? I mean, which, which were the most popular? 
oh, well, I guess, I mean, it's the same as the Olympics, you know, it's archery and swimming because they provide, I guess, the most different opportunities for people to take part. But, I mean, there were there were some quite interesting um, events in the early games that are not there today, such as uh, darchery. So there would be a, um, a a dartboard. I mean, it was it was much bigger, and it was on the on an archery boss. But they would score. It would have a, a dartboard face on it, and you would score, you know, according to where you hit on the dartboard. And one of the reason, one of the interesting things that they did was the athletes from Stoke Mandeville would go and compete against darts teams, pub darts teams. So they would shoot with arch, you know, bow and arrow onto this archery target. And the, the, the guys in the pub would play on a normal dartboard with darts. And actually the archers sometimes beat the darts players. There were other things like precision javelin. So people in wheelchairs, there would be like um, concentric circles sort of about five metres away and you threw the javelin and tried to get it closer to the centre. I mean, obviously, these were all sort of more designed to get the disabled people being physical and active. Obviously, as as the Paralympics has moved closer to the Olympic movement, it's modelled its sports much more on Olympic sports. Who were the most notable athletes in these early games? I can't really name individual athletes, but the the big countries are the ones you'd expect today as well. You know, USA, Great Britain, Italy, Canada, Germany, mainly mainly European, Australian as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There was a, a USA gymnast called George Iser who actually won six medals in 1904 in gymnastics with a wooden leg. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Now, since the summer games of uh, Seoul in 1988 and the winter games in Arborville, France in 92, the Paralympics have been held in the same host city as, as the Olympic Games. How big a move was that for the visibility of the Paralympics more generally? Yeah, well, I mean, they weren't the first time they'd been held in the Olympic City because the first two games in Rome and Tokyo 1964 were also the Olympic host city. Then, for various reasons, they didn't get held in the Olympic host city. And we come to Seoul in 1988, where they have been held in the Olympic host city ever since. And in, and the Winter Games, as you said, from Teen Alberville onwards, you know, it was, I think part of it, it, that tying up with the Olympic movement gave the Paralympics maybe credibility, media coverage, etc. And I think there was sort of an element of countries wanting to show that they treat all of their citizens the same and there's opportunities for people with disabilities to get involved in sport as there are for non-disabled people. And so it, it did have a massive impact on participation. You know, in 1984, I think we had about 45 countries compete. It was 60 in 1988 in Seoul. By London 2012, we were up to 164 countries. Now, that's still 40-odd shy of what the Olympics gets, but, you know, that's that's a, a huge growth over quite a short period of time. Now, over the past couple of decades, we've seen remarkable innovations in terms of the equipment that disabled athletes use from super lightweight wheelchairs to shock absorbers and sit skis to carbon fibre prosthetics. I mean, to what extent has that transformed the games and the, and the competitors' athletic achievements? Well, I guess it's, it's, it's at first and foremost, and I think the most important thing is that it's enabled many more people who couldn't previously participate in sport to actually participate because without that equipment, without that prosthetic, that wheelchair, they wouldn't be able to participate. And you know, I think that's a, a fundamentally important point. However, I mean, like like with the, the running shoes with the carbon fibre plates that are all the rage in Olympic sport now, you know, and, and being talked about heavily, they do also improve performance. I mean, but there are rules in place to ensure that it's actually the athlete's performance and not the equipment that wins the medals. But having said that, it, it does give a distinct advantage to the more developed nations who can afford the more expensive, you know, carbon fiber, you know, designed by NASA kind of equipment. Uh, it certainly gives them an edge in terms of possibilities to win medals, etc. Now, in, in 2012, and I think it was for the first time that the, the South African Paralympian Oscar, Oscar Pistorius competed in both the Olympics and the Paralympics. And how big a moment would you say that was for disabled sport? And can you see that happening again in the future? Well, I mean, first and foremost, people with disabilities have been competing in the Olympics since 1904. There was a, a USA gymnast called George Iser who actually won six medals in 1904 in gymnastics with a wooden leg. 
Um, Pistorius wasn't the first time that an athlete uh, competed in both games. I mean, the first time that happened was actually Nerily Fairhall from New Zealand who competed in archery. Now, they were in separate years. So she competed in the Olympics in 84 and the Paralympics in 80 and 88. Then uh, Paolo Fantata from Italy, also an archer, she competed in both the Olympics and the Paralympics in 1996 in Atlanta. And there's a number of people who've done it since. I think the reason Pistorius got so much media coverage is obviously because of the blades and the arguments around the danger to other athletes and the advantage he was supposedly gaining, etc., which many scientists have actually disproved since then. But moving forwards, you know, well, I mean, Natalia Partiko, the Polish table tennis player who's um, missing one arm from the elbow down, she's played at every Olympic and Paralympic game since Beijing 2008. She's in Tokyo at the moment, and I'm sure will play in the Paralympics as well. I think it's becoming more the norm Well, norm's probably a a bit of a strong word to use, but the possibilities are definitely there. Now, Ian, how many Paralympics have you uh, witnessed in person? Uh, My first Summer Paralympic Games was Sydney 2000, and I've been at every Summer Games since. I actually have an accreditation for Tokyo, um, but due to the restrictions, the, 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 the new rules... Uh, put into place. I've actually decided not to go. It was a very hard decision for me. What would you rate as the greatest athletic achievement you've witnessed in those games? I mean, I've I've seen some absolutely amazing sport at, at Paralympic Games. I guess for sort of sheer for the for the level of the media coverage it got, I'd have to say probably the three visually impaired fifteen hundred meter runners in Rio who were faster than the men's Olympic 1,500-metre time. You know, that really did make people sit up and take notice of the Paralympics, I think. And have you witnessed an interest in the Games, especially from the general public, grow over that, say, 20 years? It varies from country to country. I would say, yes, definitely it has in, in many Many of the bigger countries, shall we say, particularly those that are winning medals, you know, Great Britain, USA. I think a lot of it is down to the media coverage and raising awareness, you know, and the more awareness we raise, the more interest we tend to get. Understanding and knowledge of disability is at different levels in different countries around the world. And it tends to track with that, I mean, as an academic, I've certainly seen a huge upturn of interest amongst students interested in studying the Paralympic Games and disability sport over the last 10 years. That's grown exponentially, partly because I think, you know, it's a new job opportunity as well, a new job market. And, you know, what do they say? There's something like eight sports graduates for every one sports job in the UK. So, you know, if you can open your horizons up a bit, it certainly helps. And if you could list two or three Paralympians who, who you most admire, who, who would they be? 
don't know that there's... Uh, to be honest, I admire all of them, and mainly because, you know, as an academic, I'm aware of all of the environmental and attitudinal barriers within society that they have to overcome just to be able to take part in sport, never mind reach the Paralympic Games. And it takes a hell of a lot of tenacity and will and strength, plus the skill to get to Paralympic level, to be able to achieve that. So, you know, to me, they're all worthy of admiration just for for being there. And who are you most looking forward to to seeing in action over the next few weeks in Tokyo? I, I love the wheelchair basketball. Um, you know, I, I always try and get to the British men's and women's wheelchair basketball games when I'm at a games. Uh, I love the athletics because I'm a former athlete, but I also really love watching the boccia, strangely enough. I mean, some of the the athletes, the, I think for me, it's the impact that the sport has on the athletes because boccia's played by people with cerebral palsy, some of them quite severe cerebral palsy. And you see them sitting there in their chairs, waiting to throw. And, you know, they've got severe tics and and real sort of tremors in, in their limbs. And then they get onto the throw line and they get a boccia ball in their hand. And it's like it's a different person. You know, they're totally focused and they will put that bocce ball right up close to the jack. You know, I'd struggle to do that as a non-disabled person, and yet they do it time and time again. But if you see them just sitting there in their chair, you'd think, how on earth do they do that? What do you think the future looks like for the Paralympic Games? I mean, is there any way you think it could, it could improve? I think a lot more needs to be done to raise awareness of just how good and skillful these athletes are. I I think there's a a lack of understanding of the quality of some of these athletes. I mean, uh, a story I often tell is uh, there's a British athlete, unfortunately he's deceased now, uh, by the name of Bob Matthews, but I interviewed him on a couple of occasions. He was highly successful, you know, multiple gold medals, really, he was a blind athlete, ran with a guide, but really quick. I mean, I couldn't run the times he ran. And I, you know, I was a reasonable athlete myself. But he, he told me a story of once he was, he was in a pub and he got uh, chatting to this rather large, overweight gentleman who was, you know, drinking co- co- copious amounts of beer and the guy says, well, uh, you know, what do you do? And Bob says, I'm an athlete. I, I run, you know, 1,500, 5,000, 10,000 metres. And the guy says, oh, what, what sort of time do you do for 1,500 metres? And Bob said, oh, 4.06. And uh, the guy turned around to him and said, oh, that's not bad. He said, I think I might struggle to do that. You know, I think the guy would struggle to get around one lap, to be honest. But it does show that lack of understanding of just how good these athletes are. And do you think you're, the, the fact that you were a, a, an athlete helps you appreciate what they, what they achieve more? Does that give you a, a greater insight yeah. into Yeah, I mean, obviously, because, you know, I've, I've been through it, not to their level, not even close, I'll be honest. But, you know, I, I it's still hard. You know, whatever level you're at, it's relevant to your level of ability and fitness. You know, and I, I used to push myself very hard. Just didn't have the skill 
or the the physical ability to be as good as them. But yes, I do then appreciate, and and I do play lots of sports. You know, I, I love sport. I love being active, and so I've played a lot of sports, and so I do understand the skill, the different skills needed for different sports. And that's why I say I think we need more awareness raising, um, and you know, maybe more to be a bit political, maybe a bit more sport in schools so that people can get a better understanding of not just not just how good these people are, but the benefits that everybody can accrue from taking part in physical activity. That was Ian Britton. Coverage of the Tokyo Summer Paralympics runs until the 5th of September. We also recently covered the history of the Olympics in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. You can just search for Olympic History in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Annie Gray will be tackling your questions on the history of food. (laughs) 